0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, an update But it can be an update about Washington as well. From Buffalo and from Albany and from New York City, Kathy Hochul joins the lieutenant governor of the Empire State. Kathy, I want to go right to the stimulus and the great contention that aid is necessary for states, cities, and towns. And there's a debate about this. The only thing that's going to catalyze that are furloughs and layoffs. How close are you and Governor Cuomo to furloughs and layoffs?
1: Well, first, thanks for having me on the show, but let me first address even why there's even debate as to whether or not we need stimulus. I don't understand how anyone would conclude that we cannot survive without a stimulus package. Here's why. We never anticipated having to deal with a global pandemic when our budget was put together. Not New York, not any other state in the nation. We have incurred extraordinary expenses. We've had a huge hit to our sales tax revenues. Income taxes are going to be plummeting. So all of our traditional revenue sources are not there for us in the way we projected them to be. So we will need this stimulus plan. It's not debatable. Uh, New York State cannot be left on its own. This is a national crisis, a federal disaster And if we had real leadership out of Washington, they would understand that. Fortunately, the Democrats in the House understand it. Chuck Schumer understands that. But we're not getting the support we need, and we're going to
0: suffer. We should state to our global audience that the persuasion of the lieutenant governors towards the democracy and Mr. Biden and the Democratic Party. Can you wait out to an inauguration? Can you wait out to a President Biden? Can you get that far without furloughs and layoffs?
1: I don't have a projection on that at this point. We have been going, you know, day to day, trying to, you know, back, back in May, we had a plan passed by the House that we thought could really address our needs. We're asking for... $500 billion for states and local governments. And that's not just to fund government operations. We're talking about funding the health care workers, funding teachers, funding first responders, funding critical programs, infrastructure. So this is these are all the functions of government that have been direly affected because of the loss of money coming in that we had expected to be there this year. So we need this help. Can we wait till Biden president? I don't know that we'll have much choice, but hope springs eternal. I know there's conversations uh, with uh, Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin, Pol- Speaker Pelosi, right. and we hope that common sense will reign and they'll say, you know what? We cannot leave these states to starve and it's not good for them politically either.
2: Lieutenant Governor, more locally, uh, there's been a lot written about the power struggle between Governor uh, Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio of New York City. Does Governor Cuomo see de Blasio as part of the problem or part of the solution at this point?
1: Well, you'd have to ask Governor Cuomo how he views that relationship, uh, but I do know that we work with our local partners. There's a lot of uh, collaboration that goes on behind the scenes that does not make the headlines, and, uh, you know, we we need each other in this. And, and But also, you know, just a recognition that it is the state that has the ultimate decision as to whether or not you, you know, when and how you shut down during a pandemic and the same thing with when we reopen. Yeah. And, you know, lately it's been referred to, you know, the hot spots and how the governor had to step in to fill the void because we're seeing areas of the state and and specific neighborhoods where the infection rate went up to five, six, seven percent. That's not acceptable. The rest of the state today is at one percent and we cannot risk our recovery and getting our economy back on all cylinders by having hot spots because the issues weren't addressed early enough and in a a smart way. So the state has had to step in.
2: Kathy, there's also a question about quality of life concerns. There's a question about trash collection, given some of the budget cuts. And there's very much a question about making sure that the uptick in crime does not continue. As an anecdote, there were helicopters over my building last night. Uh, In general, it's not dangerous, but there was a shooting uh, more than 10 blocks away. What are you guys doing on that front?
1: No, and certainly that's all very unsettling for the New Yorkers who stayed, and the vast majority of them did stay, and they're weathering this out, and they also know we've been through a lot before, and we will get through this. But in the day-to-day life, uh, for people like yourselves and others, it, it's tough. But I get back to Washington here. You want more money for law enforcement. You want money for trash pickup. You cannot starve the cities in the in, while expecting those services to continue. The city of New York will have less money to work with to fund those essential services than they had predicted, and that money has to be replenished by the federal government.
0: Do you see, Kathy, a change towards a more ecumenical, a more compromising two parties over the next number of years? Or is there a permanence to these rigidities between Washington and the Democrat Party states with President Trump? Is there a permanence to that theme, or do you revert back to something more collegial?
1: It reverts back, and I'll tell you why. I have been a student of history. I'm old enough to have watched the Watergate hearings as a kid, you know, watched it gavel to gavel. I knew all the players like they're part of my family. So I thought that our democracy was imperiled back when I was just a teenager. And I have seen the resiliency of this country. I have seen that... Yes, we can go to extremes. There were 1968 was a very tough year in our nation, and people, you know, cities were burning. I remember being a little kid and going to visit Washington and seeing it burning, and the protests and what people was what was happening. You know, the division over the Vietnam War that divided family against family. But we always swing back. The pendulum swings back toward normalcy in the middle. And right now we have a cult of personality around one individual. I don't think that would have been the case if someone, you know, let's say a Mitt Romney or someone had been elected instead of Donald Trump. So I think this is all related to an individual who has promoted himself to attract individuals who are extremists, that is going to go back into the bottle and back underground where it belongs uh, when we have Joe Biden as president, but also he understands we have to have relationships with Republicans. And that's how the two-party system will continue to thrive in our country.
3: Still got an election to go. That election underway, that result a little more than two weeks away. (laughs) Kathy, thank you for coming on the program. (laughs) Kathy Hochul, New York, Lieutenant Governor. Thank you very much.
0: John, we've got to go on to more important things here because with James Athey of Aberdeen Standard, we can dive into the investment space and talk a lot about it. But right now, I mean, Prime Minister Johnson, pandemic, Prime Minister Johnson, Brexit. Of course, we're looking at the race here. And I'm sorry, James, all eyes are on Sunday. I mean, John and I have been going back and forth on this. And all eyes on Sunday is for the tots. Gareth Bale is going to come back. What's it going to mean for Tottenham?
4: Well, I think we've just put together the best front three in world football so I'm pretty excited as a Spurs fan myself um, I'm looking forward
0: to uh, goals galore I mean John are your eyes all on Sunday
4: my eyes
3: are on Saturday Merseyside Derby Liverpool Everton that was going to be fiery time we got that Liverpool out of the way shut
0: down too this is
3: Big have deal. done I mean, that? Can we move on? Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about, but James is right. This is a huge deal for the Tots <laughs> Two minutes ago, I Sunday. said I'd get this show back <laughs> this on the rails, and we're off the rails again. This guy's coming from Spain George, or whatever on Gulf Stream up to uh, England to help the Tots. Uh, they'll do that on Sunday. Okay, on to the markets right now. James Aethi with us with Aberdeen uh, Standard. <laughs> James, things have changed. How do you structure, how do you have a strategic investment plan for Q1 2000?
4: 21. Yeah, with great difficulty because you've got obviously a huge, well-known, well-advertised risk event where I think there are genuinely probably three possible outcomes which have a relatively um, high likelihood each of them. Um, and probably the world looks looks somewhat if not vastly different further down the line depending on on the outcome there and obviously i 'm talking about the u.s election. I think it's very difficult to see the house switching back to the Republicans so you're talking about Biden versus Trump and then does the Senate switch to the Democrats and uh, you know if it's a split congress i don't think that's great for for risk if, you know whoever's in the white House but if, if 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 there is a blue wave a blue sweep whatever you want to call it. I think the market wants to run with that as being growth, inflation, reflation, you know, bad for treasuries. And that's a very different world to something where risk assets have to price that out, have a bit of a wobble and treasuries rally. So truly looking through that event is very difficult. We're in such a such a difficult strategic macro environment anyway, in my opinion, there is, you know, we've seen huge, huge holes blown in global economies and now we're trying to patch them up. Uh, and and real time data is is not a huge um, you know, use in guiding you as to what the medium term trajectory is. So huge uncertainty, very difficult.
3: James, I just don't know how you invest around this going into year end. You've gone through all the different outcomes we could get from the election. The difference between a blue wave and a divided government could be $2 trillion in stimulus. How do you invest around that, James?
4: Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, $2 trillion in stimulus today as we sit here feels kind of like a small number. That's how crazy things have got. Um, As I say, it is it is difficult because you have bimodal sort of scenario. You have two very different outcomes and, and a reasonably close uh, probability between the two. So I think we're going to be running a lot less risk into that risk event than than we're running at the moment for exactly that reason. I don't, you know, if I were to game it out, probability adjust the outcomes, you get something that looks quite neutral because there's a reasonable chance of something going up and a reasonable chance of it going down. I do think there are still a few places that you can feel somewhat comfortable having a position, right? I don't think you know the Fed's policy is going to be changed in any way, shape or form by the outcome. And so if you want to hunker down in, in you know five year treasuries, maybe even a little bit further out, I don't think you're going to see a huge amount of volatility there. Um, but, but you know, other than that, it's difficult to have a strategic view as we sit here. And I think there's technical things, like I kind of want to talk about stuff, some of the technical stuff that was going on. I don't, I'm you know, we don't use options heavily and I'm not a massive sort of options expert or what have you, but we've still got this massive situation where huge option buying is going on in equity markets, in, in the market in general, in single name tech, tech stocks, and we have option expiry today, and therefore the gamma that you get from from those options getting closer to at the money and then further away from at the money. You know, these are the things I think which are actually driving markets a lot more than the macro environment on a day-to-day basis. And, and, and that's something that can be both an opportunity and a huge risk.
2: So, James, can you quantify how much you've brought down risk, how much you've gone into five-year treasuries to hunker down and prepare to be liquid and nimble when things change?
4: I mean, that's a process, but that's not something that we're, you know, that we've done a huge amount of at this stage, because we're still, you know, reasonably far from the election. And to be honest, you know, where, if you look at polling experts, if I were to just pick 538 and say that's somewhat symptomatic of, uh, broadly speaking, the polling experts view You know, that that's suggesting Biden has roughly an 85 percent chance of winning the White House. And and maybe the Senate has a 65 to 70 percent chance of, of switching over to the Democrats. Now, obviously, those two probabilities are closely connected. You can't see the chances of the Dems switch in the Senate going up without Biden's chances going up. I look at 85 and I say in a two horse race this far out with the pollings, you know, problems, shall we say, that we've had in, in, in the last two elections, where actually, you know, Romney was leading at this stage and Clinton was leading at this stage, and neither of those won. That looks to me like that's overpriced. So we're happy to oppose that for now, because it looks like too much um, a probability of Biden, and by extension, a uh, blue wave has been priced into the market. uh, And we expect other investors to de-risk going into the election. And that's likely to be, therefore, the most heavily positioned assets which see some unwind. And risk assets definitely fits the bill. Big tech definitely fits the bill. So, you know, we're positioned in in opposition to that for now. And we will look for opportunities to just take the, the overall risk level down quite considerably, to be honest, into the risk event itself.
3: James, cover your ears for a second. I'm going to talk about the B word. Here's a covered Brexit. Cable turning around. 129 unchanged on the session. The prime minister about 40 minutes ago, basically signaling he's ready to walk away from negotiations. And guess what an EU official thinks, according to our reporting, the EU expecting Brexit talks to continue with the United Kingdom next week. Tom, we talked about this, the posturing around this story. It's a prime minister trying to put some pressure on the EU. I'm (coughs) not sure the European Union feels it right now. And Sterling is capturing that story.
0: Okay, it's a game of bluff, but John, I remember you planted in the chair the first morning after Brexit. What's changed? I mean, I don't understand what's changed from that moment when you were on our old set over in Finsbury Square, talking about Brexit versus where we are right now. I don't. It, what's really changed in the power game between these two parties?
3: Two prime ministers and not much else. That's what's changed yeah. in four and a half years. James Affy How on earth do you trade this one? And for me around the negotiations, how do you know what is real negotiation and what is just posturing?
4: Yeah, really good question, really difficult question. Some of this comes from just the nature of negotiating as the EU or with the EU. You're talking about 20 odd countries that have to compromise with each other just to get to an EU position. And then obviously, if there's somebody on the other side of the table, um, they've got their own views about what to prioritize and what they can sacrifice. And therefore, it's an incredibly complex negotiation. I would just agree broadly with the idea that for possibly not as long as as going back to 2016, but certainly for the last 12 months, nothing really has changed. Both sides are talking past each other. This is a game of chicken. Uh, The the politics has changed dramatically in the UK, such that their view of how to negotiate has changed dramatically, and therefore, it's a more robust, more um, uh, politically supported, shall we say, harder negotiating position. No deal is better than a bad deal. On the EU side, I don't think they're quite there. But again, the political reality of EU EU negotiations is that doing a deal where compromise is necessary in advance of an absolute drop dead deadline is an, an unsatisfactory political outcome. Because you can't then go back to domestic audiences who you might have had to sacrifice a little bit to get the deal over the line and say you fought as hard as you possibly could. So it has to go to the wire. You have to dangle people. Over the edge, make them look into the abyss, and that's then and only then will you get some sort of compromise. Um, the, the headlines you described today—I mean, that tells you all you need to know. In terms of how you invest, I think you can be long gilts because I don't think there's a huge sell-off in the gilt yeah. market. If there is a deal, I think the you know the economic situation, the virus situation, the global duration situation more broadly is supportive for owning gilts. You know, we're tactically short sterling as as we've talked about before. One observation from today that's a bit disappointing for me as somebody who is short Sterling on a tactical basis, the downside to cable, when that first headline hit was relatively small and quickly reversed. Um, But then when you get a positive headline on the other side, the market wants to run with that. So I still think there is a sentiment um, sort of asymmetry that the market really isn't prepared to believe that the UK will walk away, which means actually short Sterling increasingly looks like a position that is will only really benefit on the outcome if we on December 31st have walked away and there is no deal so that that changes the dynamics a little bit and that's that's something I've been observing um, you know more recently but again I don't think you can have high conviction I would make it 50-50 50-50 that we either get a deal of some sort or or we don't I
3: don't know what you can have high conviction on at all right now James great to catch up sir James Athie talked about cable there
0: Right now, it is the advantage if you are successful. A hundred years ago, there was Lever Brothers and then Unilever and all the rest of that. There is a trust of the Lever family. And Jeffrey Howard at University College London is writing new books, thinking about our dangerous dialogue, our dangerous discourse in politics. We're thrilled that Professor Howard could join us uh, this morning. You've got a new book coming out, Jeffrey Howard, on dangerous discussion. Is that what we observed last night? Well, I think we observed quite
5: a bit of it last night. It was a quite striking moment, I think, when Savannah Guthrie was pressing the president of the United States about whether he would disown This extremely fringe conspiracy theory known as QAnon, one that alleges that top Democrats are in cahoots with pedophiles and sex traffickers and that Donald Trump is really a secret agent aiming to save the world from these nefarious villains. And of course, Trump wouldn't disown it. In fact, he claimed that he didn't know anything about it, before then jumping in and saying, oh, but they're against pedophiles, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Clearly he's lying. Clearly he knows quite a bit about it, doesn't
0: he? I mean, Professor Howard, what's important here is Lisa Bramwitz and John Farrell get the love notes. I've gotten a hate mail, and I've already gotten a hate mail this morning from Trump supporters who separate his discourse from policy and from what they believe are the attributes they can vote for. Is that appropriate? Is that going to be something new to American politics?
5: Look, when we're going to the polls, it's always a lesser evil justification, right? And we never have candidates that align perfectly with our deepest values. And of course, sometimes it would be appropriate to support someone, even though you disagreed with their language or their rhetoric, if you thought they were good in terms of the content they delivered for the country. The problem with the president, however, is that his language actually does have consequences. It has implications for the kind of country we're living in, for the coarseness of public dialogue. And as we get closer to the election, I think it's very reasonable to worry about the ways in which his unhinged rhetoric might, in some occasions, lead to violence. In the town hall last night, he again mentioned Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan by name, despite the attack, the plot by militia terrorists to kidnap her only recently. And I think we need to be extremely alarmed about that. And people who say, don't worry about the language, it doesn't make a difference, Mm -hmm. need to realize that sometimes it does make a difference.
3: Professor, let's talk about the polls right now. Where the president is really struggling, several demographics, including an older demographic, particularly in Florida, which is a huge change from four years ago, and suburban females as well. How can you make inroads into those demographics with a little more than two weeks to go?
5: Well, there's not a lot of time and Trump is spending time in places that he traditionally or a Republican candidate traditionally wouldn't have to be spending time in places like Georgia. And so I think it's a I'd be extremely alarmed if I was inside the Trump campaign right now. Um, Now, it's easy to look at the national polls and say that Biden's got it in the bag. But of course, we need to remember that in the swing states, it's still pretty close and anything could happen. So that's why I think Biden is being very uh, true to spend time in places like Pennsylvania, making sure that he's making those conversations and contacts with the kind of suburban women voters that Trump has done a lot to turn off in the last few years. And certainly they showed up in droves at the polls during the midterms um, to repudiate Trump. And it seems overwhelmingly likely that that will happen again just the other night. Trump directly appealed to suburban women, saying that it's really important that they like him. But he didn't proceed to give any compelling argument about why they should support a Trump administration. And that's the problem.
2: Although, in fairness, he was doing that a little bit uh, in a self-deprecating way. But, Jeffrey, let's look forward. The idea that perhaps the polls are not vastly wrong and Joe Biden does win the election. What happens after that, in the months before January 20th, when there is a transition of power? How messy could things get?
5: Well, I think that there are a number of different scenarios that might play out. One kind of scenario, of course, is the president continuing to cast doubt um, on the validity of the election, but it actually not making a difference to what ultimately transpires in January. It's entirely conceivable that Trump will continue to um, degrade the legitimacy of the election without any intention of actually trying to stay in office. This could be simply a way of keeping his supporters with him in January as he looks ahead to perhaps set up a Trump TV station so he retains a sizable portion of the electorate who stays on his side and is willing to to watch his television programs. But that's, I think, the most optimistic projection. I think it seems at least conceivable that he could inspire his supporters to go into the streets to engage in violence. We could imagine Trump supporters um, making a big scene about the election in the streets where, who knows, left-wing counter protesters show up, uh, to agitate against those trump supporters and that really would be a a powder keg that would could be extremely extremely dangerous are you predicting that this is important stop
0: look that's really inflammatory are you predicting that we could see that kind of response from people or in this nation do we move on in a more peaceable way oh so the
5: the task when we're being for cautious is to play out all the different scenarios. Now clearly the optimistic the hopeful scenario is one in which everyone accepts the legitimacy of the election regardless of who wins. If the president is reelected, we want people on the political left to accept the legitimacy of his reelection, and of course if the president loses, we want his supporters to accept the legitimacy of an income Biden administration. But I think, given the repeated attempts by the president to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the election um, and the way in which he seems to be leaning into divisive, inflammatory rhetoric. It would be um, foolish not to take seriously the possibility that violence could ensue, if only so we're on guard for it. And so we make a concerted effort to reach out to the people in our lives, our friends, our family, and remind people of the importance of respecting the outcomes of the election and of rebutting the kind of disinformation that the president has been sowing about the unreliability of mail-in ballots, which really doesn't have any serious basis in evidence.
3: Geoffrey Howard there, Associate Professor of Political Theory at University College London.
0: Right now, we have an understanding that each house has its own character. The legacy of Morgan Stanley is Stephen Roach literally modernizing mar- modern market economics through the digital, through the idea of actually publishing on retail sales the moment it was done. It was a miracle 15 and 20 years ago. Carrying that legacy forward is Chetnaya. He is Morgan Stanley, chief economist, global head of economics, and among other things, riding herd on a wonderful group of economists uh, worldwide, including Ellen Zatner, Chaitan. Thank you so much for joining us at this morning. You see, retail sales with a nice upward. Abdul- are we misjudging Q4 and Q1 worldwide, where they could actually outperform the caution?
6: Um, that's what we have been actually highlighting, as you know. We've been making this call that we will see this v recovery, and the data just continues to confirm that we are on that path. And there is no uh, stalling, especially for US and China, which are the two big parts of the world. Their data continues to surprise on the upside and we're expecting something similar out of China when we get the GDP data on Monday.
5: How
2: much does the increase in virus cases challenge your assumption of a V-shaped recovery?
6: Look, I think I mentioned this on this show before that what we have been highlighting is that the equation between virus and the economy is changing. So as we keep seeing these new cases rising again, we have to temper down the expectation of its impact on the economy. Uh, We've been of the view that growth will moderate uh, in the next three months, but it will still continue to make progress towards that V-ship recovery call that we had made which is that we will see that U.S. economy will reach pre-COVID levels by second quarter of 2021. And just look at today's uh, retail sales data. If you kind of try and do some backward math on where it will take the personal consumption spending number, the personal consumption spending number could be as much as 98 percent of pre-COVID levels uh, by end of September. And that just tells you that how much progress we have made uh, so far. So the V-shaped recovery path looks very much uh, secure.
2: Well, okay, but this is all uh, predicated on this idea that the balance sheet of homes have been bolstered by the stimulus that we'd already gotten from Washington, D.C. If we don't get that re-upped, how many more months can consumers continue to sustain the recovery?
6: Well, that's a a very good question. So what we have been highlighting is that the underlying strength of the consumer uh, balance sheet as well as income standing has been quite uh, good. So, for example, personal income as of August, and this is not for September, but as of August, personal income for households is already above by, uh, COVID levels by 2%. And the excess saving stock that the consumers have built in the last uh, five months because of the stimulus and the fact they couldn't spend in the initial months is $1.1 trillion. So the consumers have enough room to continue their uh, spending into this uh, winter months.
3: Chetan, you've been very bold and quite bullish on the economy and you've been an outlier. And Morgan Stanley have led that call over the last several months coming out of that huge contraction earlier this year. Every economic house, though, looks at their call, their base case and acknowledges a key vulnerability in their forecast. What is it for you, Chetan, right now?
6: Well, I think the the key vulnerability is essentially the the new cases. If they force aggressive shutdown, that will be the risk to our uh, forecast. I think the stimulus is less of a risk because of the math that I mentioned to you on the household strength. Uh, But it's really this uh, rise in new cases. If they really force aggressive shutdown, that would be the near-term risk. But again, that's going to be a short-term risk because as we head into uh, uh, spring, We should, again, get an environment where uh, virus itself begins to dissipate.
3: What do you think about the question that what is playing out in Europe right now is in America's future?
6: Well, in terms of the virus cases? Yeah. Look, I think uh, Europe's situation is uh, very similar to what you saw in the U.S. in June, July. You are seeing new cases rising. Uh, Hospitalizations are not rising in the same strength. And what you're seeing, policymakers, is taking a more pragmatic approach of not shutting down the economy across the board. I mean, if you just look at the uh, actual facts of how much restrictions they have imposed, uh, they've not really shut down restaurants all through. They've just decided to shut down restaurants late in the evening. So that just tells you that that point that I was making to you earlier, that the equation between virus and the economy is changing.
3: So you think the recovery can continue even as cases build, because this would also imply, Sharon, that consumers don't disengage, that companies don't lose confidence.
6: Yeah, that's right. And I think at least in the U.S., we saw that that did not happen in June, July. So we are more confident of the U.S. In Europe, you could see some consumer confidence impact. Uh, But look, as of now, uh, what we have is in the data. It's not showing any big dent in the European uh, economic numbers, too. The most important number I look at is the restaurant activity. Um, so, restaurant activity in, in Europe for the data for the countries that we have, Germany and UK, uh, had picked up a lot, but they are still uh, back to like 100% levels. So, they're not really uh, showing a huge decline in uh, retail activity in terms of restaurant spending.
3: Chet great to catch up as always. And what a call, so far at what least. year's not over yet, but it's looking good. Chet and I, Morgan Stanley, <laughs> chief economist and global head of economics, working alongside. Alan Zenner, of course, the chief U.S. economist.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.